That's Exodus chapter 15. And the slide should come up on the screen as well. And we're starting at verse one to three, and then we're jumping across. So Exodus chapter 15. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Then jumping across to verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Amen. Uh, thanks so much for reading the passage for us. Um, if you may, uh, do put the Bibles, keep your Bibles open in front of you and you have a handout there to help you to follow along. Well, as part of our Hebrews series, we've been tracking back into the Old Testament and to understand a bit more of the context of what we are seeing in Hebrews. But so far, the big idea of what we've seen in Hebrews so far is that Hebrews is about a journey. Uh, it's a U-shaped journey of Jesus from heaven down to earth and back up again, a journey that saves us. But last week, if you were here, you remember we went back to the book of Genesis and we talked about our plight what is wrong with humanity and we saw that our plight was death physical death but not only physical death but moral death a cosmic death and also final death we are dead and so the rescue that we need is a rescue from death but here's today's question what are we rescued for what is the purpose of being rescued. You see, this is a really important question to get clear. Uh, perhaps some of you have grown up in Christian families and you're familiar with all the great doctrines, justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification, and all those great doctrines you're familiar of. But the question is, what are all those doctrines for? Uh, what is the goal that they are pointing towards? Well, for some of us, perhaps, you might have become a Christian later on in your life, and the evidence of the death and resurrection of Jesus you found utterly compelling. And so you put your trust in the evidence. But again, what is that for? What is our rescue I'm heading towards? What are we rescued for? Maybe you might say we are rescued for, for heaven. Heaven's great. It's a place where there'll be no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears. The stress, the toil, and the worries of this life will be no more. And if you're a Christian today, I'm sure you agree, heaven is a great place to be looking forward to. But again, while that is true, is that what we are rescued for? You see, getting clear on exactly the purpose of our rescue, it will shape the way you think about what you're here for, and also what you say to others. And as always, what we do here, we go to God's word to hear what he has to say on this question. 
And so we are back in the Pentateuch in Genesis to Deuteronomy, the foundational books of both the Old Testament and also the New Testament. And last week we saw the real drama that was happening. Now there's a diagram on the handout. We start with life in Eden uh, with God, but humanity is cast out eastwards away from Eden. And the end is death. If you notice in the book of Genesis, the people of God are in Egypt. And Egypt is a place theologically symbolic of death. Uh, Sheol is what some of the prophets describe it. And if you're familiar with the book of Exodus, at the start of the story, things look really helpless. Like God's people under oppression and slavery. But in the background, um, there's hope. The word of promise, the word of promise to Abraham, the word of promise of blessing. And so we come to the book of Exodus, and Exodus is all about rescue. And I wonder what might you say, uh, which is the most important chapter of the book of Exodus? You have chapter 3, Moses meeting God in the burning bush, or chapter 12, the Passover, or chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, or maybe chapter 32, the golden calf. Here's my suggestion. Uh, chapter 15 is the key chapter. It's the theological heart of the book. It is where the book hinges, is where the book turns. Because Exodus tells us two questions. So it gives us two answers to two questions. Who is our rescue? And what are we rescued for? So you're following a handout. We're on the first point. Who is our rescue? And quite clearly, our rescue is the Lord. Look down to verse 1 of chapter 15. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And here's a very, very obvious point. Uh, the Lord has become my salvation. Uh, the Lord is our rescue. The Lord is my strength. A man of war. The Lord is his name. But not only is the Lord our rescue, but only the Lord can rescue. Look to verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretch out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. Do you see the point that Moses is making? And no one is like God. Who is like you among the gods? Perhaps you might say, why? And what's so unique about the Lord? And the answer is that it's the manner of his rescue. It's how he rescues his people. One of what I'm trying to do here at Common Gun Talks is also to encourage you to read your Bibles. And I've got two tips for us when we come to Hebrew poetry. Uh, two tips to be reading Hebrew poetry. The first is intensification. And the second is visualization. Uh, notice in verse 9, you'll notice some intensification. The enemy said, I will pursue, and here's the intensification, I will overcome. 
okay? You notice the intensification there. But also for to visualize, verse 10, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. So listen out for intensification and visualize the verses. Okay, so I'm going to be reading from verse 8. So try to do those two things. Verse 8. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in the pile. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. Do you notice the, the triple intensification? Uh, the waters, they, they piled up. Uh, the floods, they, they stood up as if they had lakes. And the deeps, they congealed. See, God, he, he blows his nose. And the floods, they stand at attention. And so we are there seeing the scene of the Red Sea. A bird's eye view where God blows his nose and the sea parts and it stands at attention and there's dry ground created in the midst of the sea. But then we zoom in and we see an Egyptian rider on his chariot. He's whipping his horse and he has a real bloodthirsty look on his face. And that's where we go to verse 9 and we hear him saying, The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have his field of them. I will draw my sword and my hand shall destroy them. Again, notice the intensification. He will pursue to overtake, divide the spoil to have his fill. He will draw his sword and his hand shall destroy. And I think the intensification, it serves, um, gives us a real sense of the, the bloodthirstiness of the Egyptian army. The greed that they are looking for, the lust blood. And as we still hear the voice of the Egyptian soldier in our heads, go to verse 10. You blew with your wind and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. You see, Hebrew poetry is so vivid. Uh, you stop, you slow down, you enjoy the intensification and enjoy the pictures. And the big point is it really serves to, uh, to show what we've already seen in verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, who has done awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders? You see, only the creator God can manipulate the sea. Only him can congeal the deeps with his breath. It's impossible for men, but normal for God. So who is our rescue? Well, it can only be him, the Lord. You see, this follows from last week. If our plight of humanity is death, it must follow that only the creator, the life giver, can rescue us from death. You think about the adoptions in the world today. Uh, Buddha died. He can't give life. Muhammad, he died. He can't give life. The secular philosophers of our age will die and they definitely cannot give life. See, it's only the life giver can rescue us from death. But here's a big question for today. Yes, we've been saved by the Lord, but what are we being rescued for? I go to verse 17 or chapter 15. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. 
the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Again, do you notice the, the, the parallel descriptions of God's house? Your own mountain, the place which you made for your abode, the sanctuary which your hands have established. And so God's people, well, they are rescued for God's house. We've got a diagram down the handout. Um, they've been pulled out of death to travel back to God's mountain, uh, Eden, if you like, life. And if you watch Prince of Egypt before, uh, Prince of Egypt, um, it's all about uh, Moses taking the people out of Egypt. But it's only half the story. Because from chapter 16 onwards of the Exodus, all the way to chapter 40, it's all about meeting God at his mountain. And also Exodus chapter 25 to 40, it's all about building of the tabernacle. Uh, many brave souls have tried to read and many have fallen asleep. But a big thing to know is that the tabernacle, it's all about God's house. I put down the handout there, there are lots of parallels between the tabernacle and the Garden of Eden. Uh, firstly, the structure. Uh, the tabernacle has the most holy place, the holy place, the courtyard, and the outer courts. And that mimics God in creation. You have Eden, you have the Garden of Eden, you have the Eastern lands, and then you have the outer lands. But more than that, the elements in the tabernacle. There are lots of fruit trees in the tabernacle, pomegranate fruits, if you read through Exodus 25 to 31. Uh, there's a cherubim embroidered onto the curtain that divides the most holy place and holy place, very much like the cherubim that guards the way to the Garden of Eden. Uh, your fruit trees in the garden as well. Uh, both Eden is east-facing along with the tabernacle. Um, Adam was cast out east, and the tabernacle also faces east. Uh, there are seven divine speeches when God gives instruction for Moses to build a tabernacle, seven speeches from chapters 25 to 31 and chapters 35 to 40 that mimics the seven days in creation. And on either side of the golden calf episode in chapters 31 and 35, you have commands about the Sabbath. So the tabernacle, well, is meant to bring into remembrance the Garden of Eden or God's house. And so more than just being boring information, you see, for the original reader, um, the instructions of the tabernacle is a peek behind the veil. It is a visit to God's house. See, to see what the high priest would see once a year. But what, uh, uh, what do we mean when we say that we're being rescued for God's house? When you imagine this, imagine you invite me to your house and I come in, I admire your decoration and enjoy your cup of tea. And then I tell you, thanks very much for the cup of tea. Will you please leave? It's pretty outrageous. It will be an insult to you, to the host. But it'd be more outrageous if it's not your house, but God's house. Thanks for the invite, God. Now, would you please leave? You see, because being invited to be in God's house is an invitation to be with him. So we are rescued for God's house. But what we mean is to be with God in his presence. So if anyone, if anyone would be happy in heaven without God, that person would not 
be in heaven at all. Here's a quote from John Piper. He says, the gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. So what are we rescued for? Or more accurately, who are we rescued for? Well, we are rescued for God. We are rescued by him and for him. And notice there's a real tight connection between point one and point two. See, God, he doesn't rescue people from death to allow them to continue living their pagan lives as if all he is offering is life insurance. Neither does he offer forgiveness for forgiveness sake. The goal of the rescue is him. Be with God in relationship with him. It's not primarily, primarily a escape, to escape hell. It's not primarily to, uh, to, to get to heaven, but it's to be with God. And it also makes sense of what we saw last week. Remember, we are rescued from death to life. But if the goal of life is not defined as a holiday in the Maldives, but rather is defined as being with God, then of course, God is what? we are being rescued for. Revelation 21 shows the climax of the Revelation 21 is that as we enter the new creation, we will see God face to face. We are rescued by him and for him. Well, here's a few thoughts for you to chew on as you head back to your office. Personally, if you are a Christian, what are you most looking forward to? See, heaven will be great. No pain, no suffering, no tears. But if knowing God, seeing your creator face to face, if that isn't part of it, it's worth pausing to ask yourself, why? Do you love the gifts more than the giver? But here's also an encouragement if you are a Christian. You already have this wonderful privilege of knowing your creator, uh, to know the one who made us. There's a real assurance and comfort in that. You see, there's something intrinsic in the human being to know where we come from, to know where we are going. And if you're a Christian, you have come to know God. You can boast in him. But here is even more encouragement. I go to verse 17 again, and let me show you something. You will bring them in and you will plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. So think about it. All the tabernacles or the temples in the Old Testament or the temples today, the cathedrals that are being made, they are all made with human hands. The tabernacle made by Moses, the temple made by Solomon, the second temple by Nehemiah, the third temple by King Herod, all the great cathedrals and buildings, all made with human hands. But here in verse 17, you will bring them to the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. So none of those, the physically built temples, fulfilled Exodus 15, verse 17. 
Uh, listen to the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 12. You have not come to Mount Sinai, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. So remember, Hebrews is about a journey. As Jesus comes, he takes hold of us and he takes us by the hand to bring us into the sanctuary, handmade by the Lord. You see, we are rescued to be with him. Well, I spoke about a passion for life um, early on, and that's what we're going to be thinking over the next couple of weeks to encourage us to speak about Jesus. But let's be really clear. The aim of what we're trying to do is not ultimately about apologetics. It's not about worldviews. It's not about better arguments. It's not about turning this nation back to Christianity. It's not even feeling the seats in the Swiss church. It's all about God. It's about knowing him, to being with him, and to have relationship with our creator. Well, the author of Hebrews says that we have come. And again, we are jumping ahead of the story. Remember, we're still back in the Pentateuch. And the book of Exodus ends with a cliffhanger. It's a real crisis right at the end. And I printed the verse uh, on your sheet. You see, at the end of Exodus, God's glory fills the tabernacle. But what happens? Well, Exodus 40, verse 35. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting. God's glory is there. But even Moses can't go in. So next week, we stand at the gates of heaven to find a way in to God's presence. But if you want to find out, uh, you've got to come back next week when I pray for us. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What is the house that you built for me, says the Lord? But this is the one to whom I'll look, the one who is humble, who is contrite in spirit, and who trembles at my word. Father, we praise you that we have come to, to know you. We have come to call you Father. And so we pray that we would long to see that day where we will see you face to face. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.